0: Welcome to the Live Lightly Podcast. Awareness to integration to elevation. Sue and Dan open intimate and complex spaces together, discussing integration from physical, emotional, and spiritual levels. Expect conversations that are honest, expansive, and solution-oriented. Everything from consciousness design to biohacking to socio-political deep dives. Creative works and building a new paradigm in relationship through daily choices. Check out the show notes for more info about Sue and Dan, plus our guests. Welcome to this week's Live Lightly podcast, and I'm so excited to be sitting with Hannah. I came across some of her work and writing let's say like eight months ago, maybe six months ago, and was like, ooh, amazing, right? <laughs> Touching on so many polarizing topics with such nuance and intelligence. And so I was very excited that you agreed to be on the podcast this week. So let's just hear a little bit about Hannah. She's a writer and a poet. She explores the social justice orthodoxy, healing, ethics, and spirituality. She studied gender and sexuality and works in the mental health sector, Right, so we're obviously going to touch a lot of amazing topics between the two of us in this 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Hey, Hannah, how are you doing today?
1: Hi, I'm, I'm good. As I just explained to Sue before we started recording, definitely a little bit of nervousness and anxiety, but also just like excitement about being able to talk honestly about things I've been thinking and feeling for a really long time. Um, and super grateful and happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, I mean, we can start there, really, that it takes a lot of bravery right now. I'm hoping that shifts in the long run, that there's more spectrum for nuance and humanity. But at this time, to really speak out about some of the polarization in the social justice movements and shame and blame that gets perpetuated and kind of the weaponization of morality on both sides, which makes yeah. everyone uncomfortable to really grow, mm-hmm. right? I think one of the things I loved about some of the writing I've read of yours is that it can be very constructive as opposed to just deconstructive. And it's mm. not just this type of, okay, let's rip everything apart. Let's, um, you know, decentralize power or... Uh, What's the right word? Reconstruct or deconstruct. Let's actually reconstruct, right? Which takes a lot of um, openness and truth and we're going to get triggered in the space. So we can really Mm -hmm. just start there maybe talking about how to handle our own nuance and Mm. the idea of not weaponizing shame or blame against others. Oh, that oh, I
1: love that What like mm-hmm. a rich and juicy opening you've just <laughs> given us, <laughs> yeah, I love so much of what you've said, and um, you know, I think I've learned how to think critically um over you know years being involved in movement spaces. But critically for a long time has meant how can we pull this apart and say everything that's wrong with it and you know, show all of these different perspectives that we're missing and critically has not meant where do we go from here, nor has it really paid attention to Um, the impacts of just tearing things or often people (laughs) is how, you know, how it shows up in the environments I'm in tearing people apart for not being quote unquote radical, you know, in the ways that, um, we want them to be, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm learning along the way how to, you know, not just deconstruct, but also, also how to offer alternative ways of being. Um, and I'm figuring that out for myself. You know, that's why the account, I won't say what it's called, but is called what it is, is because I feel like I'm in this process of really figuring out who I want to be. Um, And I've become, you know, really disconnected from the way that I want to communicate and interact and learn and grow alongside and with each other in some ways through deconstruction or through a, Mm -hmm. you know, a critical lens that focuses exclusively on deconstructing everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And how has that journey been personally in inside your inner body, and I know we might get intimate quick here, about sort of how violent just deconstructive deconstructivism can be to the point where we almost sort of pick ourselves apart and pick other people mm. apart so intensely that it's yeah. like a noose around the neck almost. Yeah. And we're doing that to ourselves in certain ways because we're looking outside of ourselves and ah, oh, inappropriate, ah, oh, performative, oh, ah, yeah. racist, ah, oh, awful, oh, ah, yeah. hatred. So Mm -hmm. what's that journey been like recognizing that inside yourself in the movements?
1: I mean, it's been like fucking awful (laughs) in, you know, so many ways. Like even, you know, as we're communicating now, I'm like having to unlearn so much self surveillance and, you know, we're not even really talking about anything particularly controversial right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to ground us in that because there are so many things that have become, quote unquote, controversial that I'm like, that is not controversial. Like me talking about compassion and curiosity and being able to communicate Mm -hmm. with people that have different opinions than you that should not be controversial. But you know, it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think something that I've learned in a really embodied way is that people who are extremely critical towards others, they're enacting all of that on themselves internally. And the reality is that we can never live up to it. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff that we're putting on other people, we also can't live up to it. And that was my reality when I was really not only like physically embedded as in like working and and learning and relationships, but also cognitively embedded Mm -hmm. as in believing. Um, in this kind of way of, way of being, I was so critical towards other people over everything. And it it was so hard to just organically and authentically exist with others because that requires you not to self surveil and it requires you you to have a degree of presence. Um, Mm -hmm. and all of that, you know, went internally as well. And I was constantly, um, you know, thinking about what I was, thinking about and policing myself inside and, you know, judging every thought I had as right or wrong, which is literally like the complete opposite of any form of good therapy, (laughs) you know, where you're thought to kind of um, question um, certain stories that you have that come up and not to buy into every little passing thought you have. So you can imagine um, just like the devastating impacts that that can have on, on your mental health.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that was really well put. And thank you for sharing that. Just that sort of internal critic and the way that it gets projected out. And yes, critical thinking is absolutely amazing, right? But it can also be this kind of nitpicky thing where we're just like popping zits all the time as opposed to looking at like the total beauty of a situation that we're in.
1: Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Critical thinking just for the sake of critical thinking, I don't know that it's always super useful or what is called for. Like sometimes the most critical thing that we can do in the moment is just love someone, you know, Mm -hmm. or just Mm -hmm. get curious about someone or show compassion or care for someone. And different things can unravel from that moment, you know,
0: Um,
1: that teach us a lot. And that is critical to me, you know, in a certain way. Um, I'm not sure if that is like really coming through, but like critical thinking is not always the most critical thing to do in a situation, I guess, is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get that. There has to be like a suspension of our ego or our attachments to really Mm -hmm. allow Connection or authenticity, right? And that takes a level of not really self surveillance, but you have written about this before as well. Something of like, I might be wrong. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, (laughs) and that's okay that I'm like stepping in with this opinion. And I also might be wrong, right? To hold those two things simultaneously is critical in the way that we can actually create authentic connection. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to bring this forth now, one of the nine social justice practices that you no longer resonate with. And one thing is that not everything is political or the idea Mm -hmm. that everything is political, if we could just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I say in that piece that it's true that we can politicize anything. Um, and when I was writing this, I was thinking about how I imagine that someone who studied architecture or someone who is an architect probably sees architecture everywhere um, mm. in the structures of, you know, this cup or a flower or, you know, all different places where we might not typically think about that as being architecture. And I feel like that is the way that I move through the world in terms of politics for a long time. Like, mm-hmm. I was able to see it in everything. And I also felt like I had this responsibility to politicize everything. And, you know, when I stepped back from that, I started to just see the ways that politicizing everything was often attaching this narrative to situations or relationships or events that wasn't even grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I've had a really long process of healing the relationship that I have to masculinity and men. And a big part of that has been stepping away from the idea of just like labeling anything that doesn't sit right with me as toxic masculinity.
0: (laughs) Mm, Brilliant, (laughs) brilliant, brilliant. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, with my partner, who's a guy being able to like lean in and get curious and to not like politicize like little things that come up in our relationship as like an example of his internal patriarchy or something like that yeah um so that's just like one small example but yeah politicizing everything is not something that I feel is you know just grounded in reality or is grounded in complexity and it often has for me involved you know, attaching a very limiting narrative to things that are actually very complex and have multiple factors.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's another side note I have right here is from your writing divesting from the idea that men are trash and that really actually stepping into the like pain points that they might be in actually not being able to connect to their inner being and wanting to see change in the future Mm -hmm. as well, right? But also having this sort of programming or um, separation from who they are and and how they might behave in the future to also rise up against the patriarchy and give them that avenue as well, you know, instead of just labeling everything as toxic masculinity. So I'm you know, I've been in the yoga world for a long time and really saw that rising to the surface in the last 10 years of this reclamation of the divine feminine. But this reclamation of the divine feminine turned into, uh, fuck masculinity. Like, I know my pleasure. I know my body. But then such this funny, funny thing is like, it was like almost hyper feminine, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, still through the lens of the patriarchy, like empowerment mm-hmm. as, um, like sort of hidden in the guise of capitalism just a bit. And then there was so mm-hmm. much going on about this reclamation of divine feminine that then all of a sudden we weren't, aren't really capitalizing on our own, um, like strong sacred masculinity that could step forth if you're an embodied female. Right. So, so yeah. also seeing that just a bit in the social justice movement, totally different language, obviously, but like this big mm-hmm. cognitive disconnect of, um human qualities that can really be embodied by anybody and then seeing how they can constructively be applied to social and political contexts
1: yeah yeah absolutely agree yeah <laughs> <laughs> masculinity yeah gosh i mean i you know was that person for a really long time i remember a friend saying to me once healthy masculinity is there really such a thing and kind of laughing Mm, about mm -hmm. it and i don't even remember who said that to me um but it stuck with me like i thought about it and i thought like is there such a thing as healthy masculinity you know that was like a genuine question that i was grappling with because i had so few examples of Mm. healthy masculinity in my life in my life Mm -hmm. and You know, the examples of men that I like maybe vaguely knew and thought of as being good men, they were often men that were really in touch with their femininity. So I was like, is it that they're embodying healthy masculinity or is it that they're just like in touch with their femininity, you know? And it really took meeting the person that I'm currently with who has just such a beautiful masculine spirit, but was also like really pushed back against some of the things that I would say. And like, you know, just like gently questioned them. Um, For me to realize that I have a lot of masculinity in me too, you know, Mm -hmm. and like those things can coexist in all different kinds of ways in us and Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about like what toxic femininity might be. And that's Mm -hmm. not a phrase or a term that I've like really heard used, but it's something that I've been thinking about because of these dynamics that I see emerging in social justice spaces. And they almost remind me of the way that we treat each other in middle school.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In transitory nature, I label it uh, manipulative femininity, which was something I also really wanted to explore. Of like, why is it okay to sort of outsource um, our, you know, my own insecurity as a woman onto a man, or my Mm -hmm. own lack of empowerment, or my own limiting understanding of my gender roles and my ability to find an elevated capacity and how we're yeah. sort of weaponizing femininity against men in certain ways and that mm. that is actually like manipulate super manipulative under the guise of you know women's empowerment or in the yoga wellness space like the reclamation of the divine feminine
1: yeah, yeah. can you tell me just so i understand better what what that outsourcing shows up as tangibly
0: yeah, totally. I mean, one thing I hear so much in my private work and then when I was teaching more publicly is I I can't find a man. There's mm-hmm. no good men out there. Okay. You know, like constantly, I want someone who's contemplative or that does yoga with me, which is kind of a bit of a, I really resonated with your writing, the converter, because mm-hmm. a lot of spiritual people go and do that as well, especially women trying to convert men into this perfect vision of sacred masculinity. <laughs> Right. That's kind of like tamped down and like this quiet sidekick thing, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. as opposed to like just how you said your partner can gently challenge you. Like yeah. that's beautiful. And we need that. You know, we don't need that sort of aggressive, manipulative, you know, be under my wing, if that makes yeah. sense. So, manipulative femininity, I label it as like victimhood mentality, you know, really using the, um, like sexualized female body to get what you want inside Mm -hmm. our current structure as opposed to really seeing sexuality as something mature and robust in your body and not really like a like dangling the fruit
1: Mm -hmm. right and then
0: also like martyr complex you know comes up Mm -hmm. like that to the max
1: of course Yeah, yeah I think of motherhood when Mm -hmm. you say martyr complex and just have like- Oh
0: yeah, let's go there, let's go there.
1: (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm not a mom, but I I think about motherhood a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, a lot of the work that I'm doing now and the reason that I started the account really came from a place of like desperation for the future that I saw for my daughters. And, you know, I kind of use the language of daughters, not only for like whatever the gender is of the children I end up having, but just the future generation of women Mm -hmm. um, that are already here, but are going to continue to come and I know will be empowered to make change and to want to do healing work. And it is unacceptable for them to be met with the dynamics that we're currently cultivating in social justice communities where there is like, absolutely zero mistake for mistakes, (laughs) which, you know, they're not even mistakes. A lot of the time, they're just Mm -hmm. differences in, you know, ways of being or um, expressing yourself or, you know, cultural differences. And, I started writing because I I just felt like we need a cultural shift. And even if it's on the micro level of the family that I have someday and the culture of the family that I have someday, Mm -hmm. I do not want to be reproducing these things um, with my kids. That's a totally different tangent than (laughs) mother as martyr and what I was talking about before, but that's just kind of what came up for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that that, You know, so from like a traditional yogic perspective, the idea of working with your immediate karmic relationships is like golden, Mm -hmm. (laughs) absolute gold, because there's so much uh, reform that can happen there in a real embodied way, where you're actually really dealing with humanity, not Instagram accounts or even articles that we write for publications. Or all those things Mm -hmm. can be valid, but they they really only take up a small portion of
1: mm-hmm.
0: sort of that human connection and really being able to rewrite a future. yeah,
1: right, with was the way
0: that we inhabit our skin, really.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always felt, not always, but probably since I was um, 16 or 17, I felt a real connection to my future children. And maybe two years ago, um, I started – feeling like they would visit me sometimes in meditation or dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that I would like necessarily see actual babies, although that did happen. Like I'd have dreams where I was like breastfeeding and stuff like that. Um, But I would meditate and I would feel like I could connect with the energy of my children. And that's been such an anchor for me in trying to be courageous and trying to be honest and, Trying to talk about things that people are terrified to talk about because, you know, you can just be canceled in a second and be on the receiving end of, you know, public humiliation and harassment and getting Mm -hmm. doxxed and all of these things. Um, But I always just come back to, you know, it's worth it for my daughters. (laughs) And that's something that, you know, allows me to continue showing up or has allowed me to continue showing up um, is just seeing that like where we're currently at is completely inadequate and mm-hmm. people are suffering greatly. And it's not because of the systems that we live in, you know, well, in some ways it is, it's the ways we've internalized all of these systems in different kinds of ways and are projecting them onto each other in the space through these very carceral logics is what mm-hmm. I what I call them. So just this idea that we create change by punishing and shaming each other.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that goes all the way to the top of the hierarchy for sure. And all the way to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was in closed Dharma talk with some of my students a couple of months back. um, Well, maybe a year ago at this point, and we were really talking about how our culture understands um, abuse and shame. That's what we understand. Mm-hmm. That's how we've sort of organized yes. everything and everyone, <laughs> but we yes. really don't understand therapy or rehabilitation or, mm-hmm. you know, celebrating someone's successes without saying like, oh, but da, da 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 Yeah, you know, like actually this, um, like like glory almost like celebrating totally. another human's glory as opposed to having this sort of shame and abuse model that we're constantly regurgitating and perpetuating or like yes. it's almost shame abuse reward kind of this yes. little cycle. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I feel like there's this underlying belief that we won't do better unless we punish ourselves or other people. And one of the smallest ways that I see that um in myself, and I'll just share it because it's I think an example that a lot of people can relate to. And it was something that like for whatever reason it it really shifted something in me when I realized this. Um So I've always had trouble getting out of bed. Um, It's like the hardest part of the day for me is getting out of bed. And I've struggled with my mental health since I was a little kid. And one of the ways that it shows up is sometimes I will just stay in bed for really long periods of time that I know are not healthy for me. Mm -hmm. And for years, I would berate myself in the morning for not being able to get out of bed. And then I would end up staying in bed longer because I would be in this like guilt and shame spiral about how like, oh, my gosh, you set your alarm for like six o'clock and it's like literally like 9 a.m. now and you're not out of bed. Like, what are you doing? And it wasn't until I started speaking kindly to myself and saying, you know, it's okay that you're feeling this way. It's understandable that you're feeling really tired. There's not a lot to look forward to today. And it makes sense that you're having trouble getting out of bed that I was able to get out of bed
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: and that there was actually room for me to make change in that, you know, little window of compassion, self-compassion that I offered myself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we fall into that, um, you know, that self-shaming and self-punishing inner talk and inner behavior in all kinds of ways I I I read somewhere that guilt is a form of self punishment. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated for me as true. And as someone that really struggles with like looming guilt over things that I logically know, I do not need to feel guilty for, you know, sometimes things that are objectively not wrong, but I just struggle with feelings of guilt a lot. Um, and I, I think part of it is from existing in these very moralizing environments. Um, Definitely. But yeah, just to say that that inner voice is something that I think a lot of people deal with. Um, and it is not what produces change.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I totally understand that. You know, I think change and integration really happens in neutrality or the pleasure space, right? Like yes. that is sort of the what the body responds to well else it just practices pain and then keeps divvying it out. (laughs) Yeah. Over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean, there's something else that you said that I thought was brilliant that was really specific to that. Uh, Let me find it real quick. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. That was like specific about um, shame and self-surveillance and really not okay. being able to maybe connect to um, just your ever-changing thoughts. That's something that I bump up against a lot in the social justice space is that I understand that we don't want to perpetuate violence. So inside yoga, there's also a code of ethics, even though you don't see it much anymore out in the mainstream. But this idea that we don't want to perpetuate violence, and then that actually sort of uh, subdues our own connection to our constantly changing ideas and self where we don't Mm -hmm. get to see that full iteration of, Oh, Oh shit. I used to think that, but now I think this, is it okay that I think this? Yeah. That makes sense where we're sort of one tracking our mind or our Mm -hmm. understanding of politics or each other. If we're constantly surveilling under this specific idea of, Oh, well I'll get punished if I was to say something like that, that would be really violent perhaps. Yeah, But but then do I even have the capacity to maybe just explore it? Because maybe in another context, it Mm -hmm. might be awesome. (laughs)
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, I I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, there's fear around even just thinking about things, you know, just exploring different angles and perspectives of a situation. I think maybe what you might be talking about, I'm not sure. Actually, I think I archived it and I put it on Mm -hmm. my Patreon and said, was um, when we conflate thoughts with belief, things mm-hmm. start to get really scary. Totally. And, you know, there's so many things that it's actually really important for me to think about as far as misogyny and racism and transphobia and ableism and also just the world and history and my role in, in this moment in time. And, you know, there's lots of elements of these issues that I've been scared to think about because you almost become scared to even just think anything problematic because you're worried that it means that you believe it. Mm -hmm. And that's just such a like terrifying headspace to exist in as someone that has a million passing thoughts all the time some that are crazy some that are yucky some that are violent you know like all kinds totally. of weird shit is going through my head at any you know given time in the day all
0: humans all humans heads
1: <laughs> yes all yeah. humans heads. so yeah you know when you teach someone that like everything that they think about like needs to be judged and that it could be an indicator that they're like a you know a a racist or a misogynist or, you know, whatever other terminology fits that, the context. It's just um, extremely unhealthy. Like it just ends up being extremely unhealthy. And I think there's a really important distinction to be made between self-surveillance and just being mindful, you know? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm having maybe like a reoccurring belief that is like really toxic or is showing me um, maybe some form of like bigotry or some kind of a stigma that maybe I'm carrying around. For example, Mm -hmm. I recently started taking a medication and I have like a lot of stuff just about like deciding to take a medication that I'm like working through and was thinking about a lot um, when you were, when I was reading your book because I know that I'm medicating certain things that, Mm -hmm are totally natural and inorganic and, and are okay and are there for a reason through my medication. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm choosing to use it anyway to survive this particular moment in my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, and, I think
0: that's very powerful. You know, yeah. I think people get stuck when they don't have an exit plan and they and they don't have that level of contemplation around it. Of yes. do I still want this? Do I still need this? Do I still need, is this in service to my mind stream anymore? Totally. You know, like as yeah. long as that thought's there, that's amazing. You know, you want to be able to reach for things in a way that it feels um helpful, you know. Yes. There's nothing absolutely nothing wrong with that.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I agree. There there's also this element though, and I I I of I know that i'm I'm numbing myself to my like inner knowing by taking this medication mm-hmm. um, and that at the same time, it's still what I need to do to, to survive this moment in life, right. which is like just such this contradiction because of course, I want to be like honoring all of the things that come up, and I want to be like listening to myself and not like silencing that like internal dialogue mm-hmm. um. But at the same time, you know, sometimes maybe we just reach a turning point where like it's kind of the only option available. And maybe we commit to it being an option for just a period of time and knowing that we don't want it to be something permanently that we rely on. Um, But I just brought this up because, you know, I was confronted with like certain like maybe stigmas that I had surrounding taking medication or, you know, just stuff that I was kind of carrying around some of it, which was valid, some of it that wasn't. And that's mm-hmm. mindfulness, you know, to be able totally. to, you know, kind of question and to think about and to figure out what is in alignment for you. And there's a big difference between that and judging everything that you think,
0: <laughs> Yeah,
1: <laughs> which is where I have been.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think you could probably even go one step further and, and flip that on its head just a bit and say like, perhaps it was my inner knowing that nudged me to reach for this. Maybe yeah. it's evolving too. I hope so. Yeah, I, I 100% so. think so. <laughs> you know, because there isn't really a time when that ever leaves. Of
1: mm-hmm. course, it changes tone. Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: And changes language at times, but it doesn't just evacuate because it's unhappy with the choice. It doesn't have that binaried <laughs> ability. <laughs> it's yeah. witnessing all, all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: No, that's, that's really true. And there was a period of time when I first started taking this medication where I felt extremely disconnected from it. And I felt like it had almost gone away. And that was really scary for me. Like, I didn't feel Mm -hmm. like I had this Mm -hmm. inner dialogue with myself that I have all of the time. And my brain felt like really...
0: And as kind a writer, of, that's like... As a
1: writer, it's scary. What? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm it's like, really okay, cool, cool. Things talking to me, things talking to me, things won't shut up, things continuing to, talk to me. All right, yeah. I'll get to you later, you know. Okay, yeah. now I can get to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was none of that happening. I was just like, I feel mm. a deep sense of peace and calm, but also there's like not a lot going on inside right now. And Ooh, I don't know if I'm okay a, with that.
0: Oh, I love this little like moment here as well, because sometimes I when I'm super happy, I'm not writing as much,
1: mm, you know, like I'm yes. like in life
0: flow and like out doing stuff, you know, it's kind of like that mind that picks things apart for me in a very yeah. positive, contemplative way that sort of motivates like, oh, let's say this differently or let's offer a different option or yes. whatever it may be. But I think what's super cool, though, is that sometimes mind can be quiet when we are in peace and it doesn't have much to deconstruct.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And then there can be this like emerging discomfort that can come with that, I discovered, <laughs> which I never related to before. Like I had read things about like, is it peace or is it, is it boredom or is it peace? Like that kind of like sentiment mm-hmm. before. And I was like, meh, like I, that's like an interesting thought, but I don't really relate. And then when I started taking this medication, I was like, this is, this is so bizarre. I, yeah, I feel really peaceful. I don't feel like I have a lot to say. And am I okay with that? <laughs> you know, and I mean, I ultimately, yeah. I decided that I was just going to trust in um, like kind of seeing things through for like a six week period of time and then I would reevaluate. And like you said, like I found that that inner knowing didn't go anywhere and that the tone just changed and it maybe became less of an uh, internal emergency inside and more Mm -hmm. of a conversation, which is what I need right now to have a little break.
0: (laughs) Oh yes. Yes. That's definitely imperative. You know, I think for the long-term long-term sustenance of putting work out into the world, you know, you've got to have that sort of second gear, moment where you're not always sort of rushing to hear your fingers across the keyboard
1: (laughs) yes yes absolutely and just trusting that you still are processing and absorbing and i my experience at least is that there's a lot often that's going on underneath the surface during those times Mm
0: -hmm. not that there always
1: has to be i don't want anyone to be listening to this and feel like they always have to be producing even if it's not on the conscious level you don't. Um, but that's that just has been my experience is that we are always like absorbing and we are always listening. And yeah, all of that is totally. happening, even if it's not at the forefront.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, that that's actually a pretty exciting experiment to see how it goes and what it births.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm really excited. I'm mostly hoping that it's going to allow me to graduate the program mm-hmm. that I'm mm-hmm. currently in. Um, And if it does that, I will be absolutely thrilled. (laughs) And if it does anything else, I will be beyond thrilled, but we'll see.
0: Yeah. Cool. So let's talk um, cancel culture and accountability a little bit.
1: Sure. And just
0: understand, like, it's it's like gut-wrenchingly hard for me to watch sort of the cancel culture takedowns. Yeah. Um, of course, I definitely understand on one level of, you know, someone who's perpetuated lots of sexual abuse or for years, right? They're sort of at the top of a really intense hierarchical trickle down. You know, I think that there is a time and place to say, like, let's dethrone this ideology because it's clearly not serving millions, you know, mm-hmm. uh, very specific situations Um But it has kind of taken on a mind of its own in a way where if it's like we disagree or through our own opinion, and I agree with you, I really like to differentiate in my body between my opinion, um, am I somewhere in the middle on this subject, sort of my old self programmed opinion, you know, like to check in with my 22 year old self, my 35 year old self and see Mm -hmm. like, well, is this an opinion that I'm really sort of cycling someone else's choices through? And then immediately saying like, no, you know, I'm not into that. And then we see these huge campaigns of, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of social takedowns of people's entire lives and livelihood, not always based in, Um, reconstruction or we're still in the shame punishment model with cancel culture. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that on like the community level, and I guess I'll I'll use that phrasing just to identify anything that is not like a, you know, not the CEO of some big business who's accumulated a ton of wealth and has abused their power and and this kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But on the community level, I have never seen a successful accountability spectacle online. That's what I think of them as because I feel like it is a spectacle. It's designed um, maybe with the best of intentions, but to be witnessed Mm -hmm. by many people and to create this kind of mob mentality among people who are watching where your um, your own goodness depends on participating in the humiliation and shaming and punishment of this person. One thing that I just wrote down while you were speaking was that disagreement is experienced as a threat to safety. And I think Mm -hmm. that is something that, um, in my experience, creates the fuel for cancellations, uh, is that we slowly over time, at least this is what I experienced in myself, we come to see disagreement as an actual threat to our safety. Mm -hmm. And I think this was like really perpetuated for me through like safe spaces and safer spaces, which at the beginning I was like, this is amazing. And like, this is a tool for us to like be sensitive to like the different histories that people are carrying when they enter an environment. And then, over time, it just became this other thing where it was about surveilling and policing and only allowing this like very limited way of showing up, showing up, which one requires you to be neurotypical mm-hmm. because right. I mean you know mm, great point, even if yeah. you are neurotypical it is extremely hard to understand all of the subtext of these environments because there's Mm -hmm. a whole other language that is being used. There's many words that are allowed and not allowed. Um, But just back to my initial point, it was for me first through these safer spaces that I began to experience difference as an actual threat to like my safety.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, I think underneath it was maybe this idea that if I was um, confronted with someone who thought differently than me, well, one that they like didn't have my well-being in mind and that they were like out to get me somehow mm-hmm. and then two that like there was this risk of us potentially getting sucked into like the other side right. um if someone you know said something that was conservative or I mean and that's being very generous most of the time it's things that are very (laughs) you know they're like they're they're things that fall within the frame of what would be considered acceptable on the left but again we're at this new moment in time where like language is being recoded and problematized in all of these different ways
0: Mm mm-hmm Yeah. And that like recodification of language, it's like the veneer of safety for sure. And then Mm -hmm. over time, it's kind of like, uh, it erodes the community from the inside out, right. To sort of just put what you said in really simple terms as well, because then all of a sudden, you know, if you feel like you're always on eggshells, then Mm -hmm. everybody's feeling that. And then there isn't Mm -hmm. really, a. Hey, what the fuck do you think about this? This shit is going down. It's nuts. Like you can't just have like a yeah. normal conversation when you don't yeah. fully have this sort of academic speech at the tip of your tongue. yeah and, and you just kind of want to put your full humanity out there. Yeah, but no way, man, no way.
1: No, no yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I say to people, you know if you like if this isn't something that you want to speak about or if you don't feel comfortable speaking about it, that is okay. You know, Mm, I understand that, you know, like you need to prioritize taking care of yourself and keeping yourself safe. Sorry to use that word again. I can't think of another one, but the Mm -hmm. actual risks of going against the discourse are like you can lose your job you can lose your housing you can have you know people that you thought were like loyal friends for a long period of time completely turn on you and it's not because they're bad people and it's not even necessarily because they're not your friends it's because Mm -hmm. they are also embedded in this ideology where they have been taught that difference is a threat to their safety and to their Mm well-being
0: this is that's a prolific problem in yoga communities as well right, to actually sort of challenge the teachings or to say about the master teacher. Wasn't that kind of a little bit off how they said that? Like that like felt yucky. Did anybody else feel that? Like even sometimes saying that in sort of big groups where we've seen a lot of demystification of the guru seat because there hasn't really been that ability for new discourse to arise because it's sort of like a follower model almost.
1: Totally. You know, yeah. and what you're saying just makes me think that part of the construction of this of this echo chamber mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, there becomes like no room for any like nuanced dialogue because you have to protect yourself so adamantly that, mm-hmm. you know, if we were in one of these environments together, Sue, and you kind of pushed up against something that I said... I, even if I, even if I was like, hmm, maybe that was a little fucked up, I would have to defend <laughs> myself like, yeah. you know, like crazy. And I would have to maybe even find a way to flip it on you so that mm-hmm. you're actually mm-hmm. the one that's being misogynistic or, you know, whatever it is that you were, you were saying I was, you know, being in that instance, this is obviously a totally hypothetical, silly no, no, situation. I totally get
0: it. Yeah.
1: But that creates the echo chamber because then mm-hmm. we can't just disagree. And I'm so thirsty for that. Like I am mm-hmm. so yeah. thirsty to just have someone say, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if I like agree with that. And like mm. this is why. And to have those conversations where we can actively think through it together because I don't agree with myself half the time.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> yeah, see are we're, we're walking balls of contradiction for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everything that I said 5 years ago I disagree with now. And 5 years before that I disagree with all of that stuff, you know? So mm-hmm. there needs to be room to just have these conversations. And if there is not, and I think that that's one of the reasons why self-censorship and why um like self-surveillance and punishment and shaming are so dangerous. I now realize mm-hmm. from experiencing it is they create these really intense echo chambers where truth is literally being fabricated by people mm-hmm. in the space and by the play of emotions and punishment and the certain kind of conditioning that's happening within that um, arena.
0: Mm, What a great question, you know, to sort of check your echo chamber of like, is truth being fabricated in this context? Do I understand the context I'm in of why this is right or why this is wrong? Yes. Only inside that context can I make that claim.
1: I'm in a weird place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I was at a dinner party, which is like super rare for me because I'm all water and very introverted. (laughs) And one of my family members was with me and she was like, wow, you did a great job being social. I know that's like not your thing (laughs) like the next day. And I was like, yeah, you know why? Because that Lady from Russia, she's just saying what she thought. Like, did I agree with everything? No. But could I actually get into a conversation with her? Yes. Like, yeah, that's the kind of like social discourse I want to be in, you know, where yes. it's like, well, that's true, but have you thought about it? Or vice versa. Yeah. Not just this sort of like all agree thing, or yeah, that's just the world, huh? It's really tough. And I'm doing da-da-da-da-da, just like you are. Period. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: God. Or trying to, like, out radical each other. Mm, you know, that's yeah. something that happens a lot in these communities where it's like, yeah,
0: give us an know- example of that kind of speech, because we do come from different points of view. Okay. So just like a few sure. ideas of what that speech sounds like.
1: Okay, sure. So, yeah, I hope that everything I'm saying is making sense to listeners. No, yeah, it's, it's because- perfect. Yeah. Okay. okay yeah, good. I just want
0: to make sure because I think it's valuable for anyone listening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um... Hmm, Okay, I'll try to come up with an example on the spot. So let's say that I was um, uh, getting into an argument with my partner over something that I felt was him exhibiting toxic masculinity. And I was Mm -hmm. talking with a friend about it and we were unpacking all of the different ways that his toxic masculinity was showing up in that instance. And then my friend says... Well, have you thought about the ways that disability politics plays into this mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uses like some other intersection as like this way to almost it's like this it's this like competition for you know who can drop the most buzzwords, who mm-hmm. can do the most quote unquote intersectional analysis of a situation? And then like, while we're doing this, we're just attaching all of these narratives to something. Mm. I mean, that has been my experience of it now is sometimes those things are really useful in understanding a situation. And other times it's like, you've just like written like another storyline about something that happened that maybe he just forgot to hold open the door for you. Like, I don't know, you know, like. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And that also really doubles back on just sort of this fabrication idea, which mm-hmm. I think is like a great word. It can be a very intimidating word. And I get that, you yeah. know, because we we all want to feel this like solid bedrock of truth all the time, right. you know, and sometimes that actually is false safety. Right. Yes. But that, that's such a great thing to check as well. Like, well, why don't I just ask the person?
1: Yeah. What was yeah. going
0: on in their head? right as yes. opposed to sort of this like oh,
1: analysis <laughs> totally and i mean again it goes back to what we were discussing earlier it's because there's no room for disagreement and then mm-hmm. that feeds into this culture i mean not with me not with me and my partner that's just a one-off random example but yeah. um within these environments because there's no room for disagreement you actually end up talking behind people's backs a whole lot.
0: oh that's the and trickiest part yeah
1: so much gossiping and
0: mm-hmm. You know,
1: so many DMs Ooh, between, yeah. you know, people about someone else and that person, I've never seen them actually included in the conversation in a way mm. that was, um, you know, where there was a, you know, power dynamic that would have created the conditions for some kind of change or some kind of healing
0: totally. to happen. Mm, hmm.
1: So, yeah, all of these things, you know, kind of are happening at the same time and they're creating like a community environment that is just like so intolerable, I think, for so many people.
0: hmm. Yeah. I mean, the the gossip thing is also prolific in the yoga world. And, and I think sometimes to mitigate that, we could create our own ethical safety if we just turn to the person and we're like, I actually haven't talked to Stevie about that. I don't have a comment yet. Yeah. You know, but that takes so much steadfastness in our inner body. Yes. To to actually say, like, I'm going to just drop all of this with one sentence. Haven't heard it from the horse's mouth. Not going to proliferate fabricated truth just yet, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And in these environments where there is like a lot of gossiping and talking behind each other's back you quickly kind of learn that like you are not somehow immune to that like there's totally. probably people talking shit about you too mm-hmm. and then you know you're watching yourself from all mm, sides that's a great
0: point great to point.
1: you know make sure that you never do or say anything that could be misconstrued and to give you know that could give someone else fuel to say something about you there was something else that i was gonna say oh oh yeah I think like one particular mechanism, and I, I love what you say that like if you if you could just say like very clearly and very kindly, I haven't spoken with that person and so I don't feel really comfortable speaking about it. The problem in the spaces that I'm embedded in is then mm. that is now framed as so you don't believe survivors.
0: Okay, got because it. Everything
1: mm-hmm. is considered considered a threat to safety, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: when everything is considered a threat to safety, that means that even minor disagreements are um, framed as as if someone's life was in danger. And then mm-hmm. you know you have a whole community of people. And again, I was one of these people that are so steeped in like the victim complex. Mm -hmm. or the survivor complex, or whatever you want to call it. And that's a terrible, terribly scary place to be, to feel like everyone is, because it's very real, you know, while you're in it, you feel like people are just such a threat, and people are scary, and people are trying to hurt you. And, you know, these different things that happened are like an example of some evil that is like, in this human spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, but just yeah. to say that, like it, like it becomes this thing where, like, you can't even rely on those those phrases that might normally be helpful in a social situation. Or if you do rely on them,
0: you risk being canceled. <laughs> mm, okay, got it. Yeah, that was super helpful. I think that you know that might have been some of my trepidation in like deep, deep. And I love how you use the word social justice orthodoxy, where it kind of just feels like everything is a pain point all the time. And then you really have to figure out what is a pain point in your own body or your own experience. But then your mm. your experience isn't more valuable than someone else's experience. So yeah. I understand sort of that nuance. And, you know, inside like sort of contemplative Buddhist spaces, it that comes from your own inner sadhana your own practice if that makes sense doesn't mean that your vision is best vision but what it helps you do is hold opposites on a continuum there's lots of meditations and pranayams where you you like i'm hot i'm cold i'm angry i'm happy and you are actually experiencing these things in your body so that you yeah. know what's coming at you. Does that make Mm. sense? It's like tricky when there's all these funny mind games, but there isn't really an embodiment practice, right, to sort of support long-term change.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, it's, I feel like I have an understanding of certain dimensions of abusive relationships Mm -hmm. that I didn't, really understand before, because of how absolutely mind fucked I've been by these environments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a big reason that I've, you know, begun to mentally and physically and spiritually and emotionally distance myself from them is, you know, my body for a long time has been in conflict about the way that we treat each other in these environments, how I've Felt since I've entered them, and that for some reason, even though I've felt like I'm coming closer and closer to the quote unquote truth of, you know, systemic oppression and how fucked up our society is, and you'd think that that truth would be liberating and would be energy giving and would be healing and would create connections, instead, it's done all of the opposite things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a big part of my process has been really connecting with my body, um, and feeling, you know, where I'm holding all of this stuff and being able to not just attach a story to it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but, you know, to perhaps think, you know, maybe there is something wrong. That was the Mm -hmm. first thing that I just allowed myself to do is maybe there's something wrong. Maybe it's not that, This is my internalized whatever coming up. Maybe there actually is something wrong here with, you know, how I'm treating others, how I'm being treated, like the culture of the environment. And then it just kind of all started to fall apart once I went there, even the littlest bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I know that words right and wrong sort of trip people up, but maybe like something's off, something's disconnected. Why don't I feel like comfortable in my body? Not what's yeah. going on around me. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. why don't I
0: feel comfortable in my body? Why don't I feel um, sort of like uplifted in my chest to just say what I think? You know, totally. something like, like those kind of cues could be long-term helpful, I think.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So... <sighs> Yeah, absolutely. So important to be able to tune into the knowledge of your body and to not just immediately allow someone else really to tell you what is going on for you. Because Mm -hmm. that, you know, that is what happened to me. Like I would have this discomfort and then I would tell myself that that was a part of the process of working through my own like internalized sexism or internalized right. racism or whatever else. And I attached that to everything.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was just a story, mm-hmm.
1: you know, and it's it's not to say that working through internalized power and the ways that that lives in us is comfortable all of the time. It's just yeah. to say that that might not be what's going on for you. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. There are
1: many things that those feelings could be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely worked through a lot of internalized sexism to get to the point that I'm at, to use those words purposefully, you know, and then at some point also was like, but what if you're neuter? Like, like asking questions that were even beyond that spectrum of mm-hmm. my body and my body mind's relationship of how it functions mm-hmm. out in the world and what it gives of service. Like, how do I actually define it outside of that spectrum? Okay. I hit the edge of it. Yeah. You know? And I can't keep using that as a pathology. I, you know, I see this a lot in my students. They pathologize mm-hmm. their growth so yeah. much that then it's like, bam, right back to the thing that happened 12 years ago. Yeah. You know, instead of saying like, yeah. oh, yeah, actually, I, I like took a moment and I stepped outside of the pathology for a second. Yes. You know, yes. I got a whole totally different set of goggles on almost now. Yeah. 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 Being able to sort of question from that place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's different things that like tuning into that conversation that my body is having with me at all times. There's certain sort of guidelines that I've been able to determine for myself as far as what I need for a relationship to be sustainable for me. And there are things like, I need to be allowed to ask all questions. And that, you know, totally. that doesn't mean that every time is the time for questions or people often take these things to, to such an extreme, you know, when I say them, they put them in like the most absurd context where it's like, well, of course, don't ask a question <laughs> then, or just wait, you know, yeah. um, but I need to be able to ask questions. Um, I need to be able to share what's on my mind. I need to be able to cry. I need to be able to express whatever feelings are coming up. I basically mm-hmm. need to be able to show up in wholeness. And I need, I need you to be able to show up in wholeness too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that doesn't mean that like what we're always bringing is you know, easy or palatable or suits each other, but just to, you know, to be able to show up as we are, I need to be able to say no, I need to be able to say maybe I need to be able to say yes. Um, I'm very weary of just dynamics where things begin to feel coercive, or like I'm not allowed to think for myself or develop my own opinion. So yeah, I know these are things that I'm, I'm gradually figuring out. And I really am grateful for my body um, in helping me kind of get where I am all in Mm. one piece. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The word coercive is a really valuable one,
1: you know, kind of
0: almost feels like just being strung along and you feel like you have to go in that direction Yeah, to like to sort of check that energetic dynamic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was one more. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no,
0: go ahead. No, you go first. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, there was one more thing that just came up for me, and I was thinking of it while you were speaking, and then I was just trying to remain present with you, so I kind of lost it. Um, But I was thinking about, you know, who is activated by social justice rhetoric or discourse and what those wounds are. And I've written Mm -hmm. about this a little bit, but I think that it's often people that really struggle with feeling like they're not good. And that um, those those wounds might be that when you were a child, the only way that you earned you know love or kindness from your parents was by doing something good or being good, or maybe you can never do anything good. No matter what you did, it was right. always wrong or bad in some kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I've struggled with guilt from the time that I was a really young kid, um, and it, almost like over. Nothing. Like, I, I've just had this feeling of guilt that I've carried with me for a really long time. And I've also had this feeling of real responsibility for other humans and the planet and animals and water and the land that I live on and all mm-hmm. of these kinds of things. And that really translated into wanting to become involved in social justice work and just feeling like, yes, like this is my calling is to mm-hmm. do healing work on all different levels. And, and, and as I became more and more immersed in these spaces, and as I've kind of started to deprogram myself from some of the discourse, while at the same time holding on to the good bits that,
0: totally. you know, I
1: still hold really close to my heart, it's become really clear to me that I have like a lot of wounds around being good.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And being bad, (laughs) if we want to kind of bring it back to like this, you know, binary, Um, just yeah, not being good enough in situations, not being ethical enough or moral enough and already holding myself to these like really extreme standards as Mm -hmm. to like what it means to be a human being. I was one of those kids that was like a vegetarian from the time I was three, you know, because I found out that meat was animals. And I was just like, what?
0: How and
1: why are we doing this? (laughs) You know, (laughs) no judgment to anyone who, who eats meat or fuels their body in whatever way, you know, suits them well. But just to say that it's been a real struggle and if you're listening and you found yourself in, in movement spaces that are similar to what I describe, perhaps some of your healing has to do with really connecting with your inherent goodness, mm-hmm. because this is a very actually like Judeo-Christian way of
0: conceptualizing totally. humans. Mm-hmm. Um, like an inherent brokenness.
1: Yes, yeah. or a mm-hmm. sin, you know, and it's been so healing for me to just kind of let go of that paradigm and think, well, well, maybe it's that I already am good inside, and there's nothing that I actually really need to do or be, to to be good. Maybe humans are just good, and it's about like accessing that and putting us in situations where we can really express that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's a really valuable point, and I think to even, you know, extrapolate it on a bit, it's really helpful for me to go good in the eyes of who.
1: Mm, yes, you know, like I love like good in that. the eyes of
0: who like you know when you're in a deep argument with someone and you're like god i wish they could just know how i feel you know yeah. and on the yeah. other side of the court there's they're saying that to themselves in their own language in their own way right yeah. and, and someone when there isn't like closure and you just have to say like you know what i did the best i could was it perfect absolutely not yeah you know like that question for your own inner body of in the eyes of who Good yes. in the eyes of who? And then it's like, oh, good in the eyes of this religious text, good in the totally. eyes of my social justice space, good in the yes. eyes of my yoga teacher, good in the mm-hmm. eyes of my partner, good in the eyes of, you know, to because there's every single one of those spaces is going to have a different answer.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And just thinking, you know, like if the answer is good in the eyes of me. Thinking Mm -hmm. where do, what does goodness mean to me? You know, Mm -hmm. what does goodness really mean to me? And kind of unpacking maybe some of the different ways that our expectations of goodness have almost become this cognitive distortion where it's like no human being can live up to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. You know, being good is being pissed off sometimes and, you know, <laughs> yeah. screaming occasionally, maybe slamming a door and stomping your feet, you know, like sometimes yeah. we're reactive and, you know, that doesn't make you bad. And at the same time, it doesn't mean that maybe we want to continue showing up in that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I think we all just need to give ourselves permission to just, at least I know I do, to just relax a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And to know that it's okay to have a lot of different parts that you are, you know, working on integrating and working on allowing to peacefully coexist in the being that is you and that sometimes there's sad or hurt parts of ourselves that get projected on others. And Mm -hmm. the good news is, if we are in these relationships where we can show up in our wholeness, we can do that repair work.
0: Yeah. And I you think that's know what it's you can about. catch when you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And then it's a beautiful place because then you can actually not move towards surveillance, but move towards extreme self responsibility, which is, oh, shit, what I did was like inappropriate. Let me just explain why I did that. Yes. I'm hurt. I'm scared. I'm sad. I don't feel good. I feel sick. That reminded yes. me of the past, you know, da 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 da. That's yes. like extreme self-responsibility, which I know can also be very demonized in sort of social justice spaces of like mm-hmm. individualism. And there's even so much nuance there of understanding yeah. like, well, what am I responsible for inside my body-mind relationship? Yeah, And then what am I responsible for projecting outward that's actually my own subjective body-mind relationship, not the yes. totality of what's occurring
1: totally it's yeah. it's very confusing because in social justice spaces it's like to claim that people need to be responsible for themselves is regarded as this kind of type of neoliberalism that totally. um allows like just our individualistic culture to thrive but mm-hmm. at the same time we create this culture where it's like, if you do one thing quote unquote wrong, you're a bad person and Mm -hmm. you deserve to be shamed and humiliated in all of these kinds of ways. So like many things in social justice, it's, you know, there's like, it's you you can never really get it right. Mm -hmm. And that's when it, that's how it becomes like abusive, you know, is that like, no matter what, you end up just not being able to do anything right. And for me, I've really had to connect with this balance of how liberating self-responsibility can be. Um, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, knowing, of course, there are things that are out of my control. And those two things, you know, that can coexist with, you know, not just those two things, but many more.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And that does actually happen in sort of the yoga wellness world where individualism becomes this almost escapism as if I'm also not Mm -hmm. a part of the problem. You know, right. and so it's like, how do we keep a foot in both camp of like, yes. yeah, sometimes I do weird fucked up shit. That's okay. I can tell someone about it. Oh, I actually might be able to hear my train of thought as I'm telling someone about it. Oh, and I actually have the power to choose a new behavior and yeah. I'm an interconnected being. But if I don't take self-responsibility for the weird shit I did, you know, I can polarize towards either end of the spectrum.
1: Yes. Yes. I think- something that's really helped me is just realizing that life is so context dependent Mm -hmm. and you know there's going to be situations where you are called on to be radically responsible for your own behavior and there's going to be other situations where you really need to compassionately look at all of the kind of external factors that influence something that you thought or did or believed And then there's, you know, there's going to be other situations, like you say, where you really need to acknowledge that you are a part of a particular ecology is how I like to think about it. Mm -hmm. And that the things that we do and say and how we speak about each other, you know, it does affect and, you know, connect and relate to the people around us in ways that can be healing and harmful and everything Mm -hmm. else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, ecology definitely gives it a big scope of that. There is a lot of influence here, internal and external. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we'll do just like a little bit of a pivot because I find this one really kind of sticky, especially in the social media space is performance and performative Mm -hmm. behavior and really being able to understand, you know, I actually care about this. I'm not virtue signaling. This is something that I do in my life. This is something that I'm really dedicated to. And then Mm -hmm. the other end of the spectrum where there's just so much performance coming through. And I think that could even be um, in the way that we police our own language and other people's language is, I think, is a pillar of performance too, of just like, wait, can we just like have a little bit of expansion here not be super rigorously intense, you know, so Mm -hmm. I'd love to just talk about performative activism. I think slacktivism sort of fits in this, an understanding Mm -hmm. of we can't be compassionately involved in the entire world suffering, but we can be big agents of change in certain areas. How do we stay out of the performative space, Mm -hmm. but still involved in activism?
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love that and you know it's something that i've thought about um reflectively like as far as like checking my own intentions and like really asking myself like does this come from a place of performativity and you know seeking like the validation of approval of others or does this come from like a genuine place and I think oftentimes, like, there can be a crossover there because I don't think, again, that like we can exist as these individuals that aren't affected by the relationships around us and the way that we're perceived. And I think that that's okay. You know, it's okay if you do things and sometimes you also enjoy that other people say, Hey, I really like how you did that or how you said that or whatever Mm -hmm. else. I think that's totally normal and fine. and at the same time, if like you're only doing things, like if that's the reason why you are doing things, then I think there can be a problem. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote that and I'm, I'm probably misquoting myself here, but I wrote something along the lines of performativity will always exist where authenticity is not allowed. Mm-hmm. And so totally. when I notice performativity coming up, Instead mm-hmm. of attacking someone for being performative or even having a really confrontational maybe conversation with someone where I say that I think they're being performative, which I have certainly done and mm-hmm. have you know rethought, I might ask myself, why is authenticity not allowed here? Mm-hmm. Why is this person not allowed to show up in the way that they are? Because I I think that is sometimes at the root of performativity is that there's this very limited way of showing up that is allowed. Yeah, so um, one thing that I've just kind of started to explore is rather than confronting someone about um, something that I perceive to be performative or attacking someone or showing up in a comment section or something. Or even just having like the process of internal judgment, you know, that we go through, or at least I go through when I see someone doing something that I think of as being performative, I have started to ask myself, why is authenticity not allowed here? Because I think that the two go hand in hand. Um, Mm -hmm. And that there's a very, very limited way of showing up that is allowed online and in some in-person places that I move through. I think there's this idea that this only exists online and that's a lot of the engagement Mm -hmm. that people Mm -hmm. have with it is only online and that this wouldn't happen in person is something that I hear sometimes. And I just would like to say it does happen in person and it does transpire in person for sure. But, um, you know, I think that we have a collective responsibility to create the conditions wherein people do not have to perform. Mm,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> and
1: we have all maybe contributed in, in different ways, or, or maybe not all of us, but I think many of us have contributed to creating a culture where there are so many rules now surrounding yeah. what is allowed in terms of how you can show up that what do we expect i mean you've Mm -hmm. literally we've literally provided a script that is acceptable and then now we're mad at people for performing the script Mm. Like,
0: yeah 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 yeah. yes yes that's a great point (laughs) yeah i think i might have like a very specific point of view on this but i facilitated just for years so many types of healing circles and contemplative environments, that there is a point because I am I can watch like a room of 50, right? When mm-hmm. someone gets up and they are really speaking authentically from their heart and everyone's engaged, you know, and yes. I'm not really listening to the speech patterns. I'm sort of watching the energetics of the whole room. And then the second that they disconnect from their speech a little bit and they go into a personality aspect that isn't fully them,
1: give me a yes. voice tone
0: change, give me a body language change. And then the whole room disconnects from them, you know, and it's like, whoa, when's this lady going to stop talking? You know, like you can kind of feel that starting to rise to the surface, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Of just like, whoa, what an amazing embodiment shift of authenticity, full engagement, and then performative behavior. And everyone kind of like, it's like a blank screen goes over the eyes and everyone disengages almost with their heart and their heart space and slumps and is sort of biding their time, you yes. know? So I think that could be really like how much we do that to other people and then how much we actually disconnect from our own speech in that way.
1: Yeah. like, oh shit,
0: am I in performative mode that I've like disconnected? Like one yeah. thing I had to work on for years was introducing myself because I always felt mm. so like weird about it. And then I wasn't an expert at it. And then everyone would lose faith in me. like from the beginning because it would be hard to be in that space of like oh here's who I am and here's my credentials and you know all that kind of stuff but it felt weirdly performative you know so if you can feel in your own body what feels performative and what doesn't and you can also see it when other people are doing that in person not like blaming them for being performative but the disconnect that other people have from that authenticity
1: oh gosh yeah I mean the norm in social justice spaces. And obviously I'm speaking in generalizations right now and everything I'm saying just pertains to my personal experience, but I do think people resonate. Um, but the norm is inauthenticity.
0: Mm, And I think you grow so
1: used to it Uh that, and you, you grow so disconnected from like what even authentically showing up would like be like, or feel like, Mm -hmm. Um, that rather than being able to identify this feels really inauthentic, we just become exhausted and burnt out, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's so much burnout. And I remember reading something and I'm like, how the heck would they even research that or measure that? But it was something like 90% of activists that leave social justice movements never come back. Mm-hmm. And I I remember just thinking like that seems very true to me. Again, I've that's probably fake. I don't understand how they would research that. <laughs> but um I think because you get so tired of being inauthentic and not being able to show up in wholeness. I mean, even joy and hope and happiness and ease right. are problematized as like these privileges that like Mm -hmm. only some people have or should have. And I just would like to say that is your birthright. Like all Mm -hmm. of those things, your joy and your pleasure and your ease, like those are things that everyone, you know, should, should have. And if you're accessing those feelings, despite whatever is going on in the world that I'm happy for you, you know? (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's brilliant. That's sometimes um, kind of to come all the way full circle, like the downside of overcritical thinking is that we don't really give space for that. I don't know how else to put it right now, but I just kind of see it as like a big exhalation, like a big expansion. You're no Mm -hmm. longer constricted. There's a moment like even though some things are awful, some things are also okay and going fine. Yes. Yeah. And that feels very authentic. No matter where you are, who you are, how you identify, some things are awful and some things aren't.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. And the body, I just don't think, can sustain being mm-hmm. in that space of criticalness all the time, which is why Definitely people not. get burnt out and people get, you know, literally get sick <laughs> and mm-hmm. or like they develop, you know, their mental health issues become really bad and they just have to distance themselves from the environment. Um, and and something that I think about a lot is that part of anything being critical is it being sustainable and it right. is just not sustainable to be projecting those expectations onto others in in the way that that i see it
0: mhm yeah yeah so maybe that's like a beautiful organic stopping point that authenticity is sustainable
1: yes, yes. authenticity <sighs> is sustainable joy and pleasure are sustainable and you know just having the chance to Exhale. Um, and you know, trusting that other people are inhaling while you're exhaling <laughs> and that, you know, we don't have to yes, yes. carry everything all the time.
0: Ooh, I mean, I, I just have like another question now, which I think is really <laughs> awesome actually, is this idea of what you just said that other people are inhaling when I'm exhaling. That goes to yeah. show the full interconnection that you actually can put the heavy baggage down for a little while. If you are in a community where authenticity is rising to the surface, that interconnection of like, hey, could you pick this up for a bit while I take a moment? And you know, you know, when you need to take a moment, then I'm going to go pick it up.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we need to have trusting, strong relationships to be Mm -hmm. able to do that. Totally. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that is one of the reasons that people end up just leaving is because those relationships are not there. And you realize that I I can't inhale in this environment anymore because like no one is breathing out and no one is breathing in. And there's, you know, it's you can't trust other people to, you know, pick things up. So you just end up abandoning it all together and hopefully trying to find an environment where that is the case, where you can breathe out and other people will pick it up. And I think, you know, that's kind of what I've been trying to figure out is like, where is my place now in all of this? And one thing that um, I know for sure, and it relates to what you said earlier about just people being captivated by authenticity. And then when we start to put on this performance, you see, you witness the immediate kind of disengagement and withdrawal, you know, within days of beginning the account that I started writing on, and I've been writing for like my whole life. I've always loved writing. It immediately developed a following. Oh yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I immediately got like, you know rushes of dms from people and you know just things like circulating like virally like going from having Mm -hmm. like a hundred followers to having like three six nine five thousand six seven like in such a short period of time yeah and you know it's you know it's honestly not about like the numbers or anything like that but It's just to say that I think telling the truth, like people identify the truth
0: Mm -hmm. and it
1: it resonates with people and that this, the experience of writing in the way I have has allowed me to trust a little bit more in my own authenticity
0: and Mm. that people can hear it
1: and hold it and connect with it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. And then it's, it's like a bit of a, you know, it it's it takes some intensity to hold a new archetype out in the world, you know, yes. and it's that sort of vision that then gives lots of people access to holding a different archetype and not feeling uncomfortable mm-hmm. in old archetypes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And authenticity looks seven billion ways, you know, but mm-hmm. you you know it and you feel it. It's like the middle ground. Okay, I'm on it. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hey, okay, thank you so much, Hannah, for being on Live Lightly podcast this week. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll talk again in the future because I would absolutely love that. Yes.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to anyone who is listening and connected. And yeah, I'm just really glad that we got to have this conversation.
0: Me too. Bye.
1: Bye, Sue.
0: Thank you for listening to the Live Lightly podcast. If you loved this episode, please download and subscribe. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you and your main takeaways from this episode. Tag us on Instagram and Facebook at LiveLightly underscore. We will then reshare your takeaways and insights. We love bringing you these in-depth conversations. Please remember the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as actionable advice. This podcast is a resource for general information and education only. Live Lightly is not liable for your decisions to implement information from this podcast.